Now, today, looking at this fourth talk in our Vision Provision series. And this is a series that I do at the beginning of each year. We're going to sort of elongate it this year because this is a pretty uh, critical time for us. We're actually coming upon our 10th anniversary, which is hard for me to uh, believe. And this, this study is sort of a good parallel for us to think about what the future of our church looks like in some very critical areas. But not just pra pragmatically. I'm not, you know, against pragmatics. I just want to make sure that our pragmatics are always in line uh, with biblical truth. And so this series will be as practical hopefully, as it is uh, as honest about the teachings that the Scripture gives us here, okay? So this series is really a case study in how a person who deeply knows God and understands his purposes for his life, Nehemiah, senses this and eventually follows God into this amazing journey where he helps to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, now, there are three teachings online prior to this, including some of the history that has led up to this. I'm not going to revisit all that today. I'll give you like the 10 cent version of it, but would certainly encourage you to listen to those uh, teachings if you haven't already. Right now, Israel is, uh, as we just read, a, a sort of shamed and defeated people. They have been conquered and utterly destroyed by what was once a major empire on earth, the Babylonians. And then a little bit after that, the Persian Empire rises up and destroys the Babylonians and now is in sort of possession of this area of the land. And so the king of Persia allows Nehemiah, his cupbearer, the freedom to go home. We're not at that point in the story yet, but there's a, a good relationship between them two, and that's going to matter because we're going to talk about this today. And so what happens is, is Nehemiah gets some information about the disarray that his homeland is in. It's in really, really bad shape, and he grieves deeply over it. And out of that grieving comes a series of actions that we're going to be looking at over these next weeks. And so if you've missed any of that history, I really want to encourage you to listen to that stuff because there's a much more thorough teaching in these areas. But that is sort of the big picture arc of where we've come from and where we're going. Because what begins to happen is Nehemiah discerns a clear vision from God, a future direction for his life. One that honors God, is faithful to the scripture, and benefits others. We've spent a lot of time defining what vision is in this room so that we can be discerning of it when it is unhealthy, abusive, or autocratic. Uh, those are the three metrics for any kind of healthy vision that we sort of recognize that it's affirmed in scripture, not violating any of God's commands, which is, interestingly enough, one of the things Nehemiah repents for that it honors God in what we do, and certainly that it benefits and blesses other people. Those are, it's a good triad, if you will, to be able to think about what healthy or Christ-centered vision is like. And so last week, we began talking about the critical importance of how one can confidently know the difference between unhealthy and healthy vision. Knowing the criteria for godly vision is very important when it comes to your own life, because, uh, and certainly our church family, it's not just limited to us, remember the church is us. So if we are the type of people that really believe God has a future for us as individuals and collectively as a body, what it means is we should presuppose there is a future. Like, we should believe that deeply and expect God to work in ways where he shows us what that is. You cannot follow God in the future if you don't actually have any tools or any awareness to believe that there is a future for you in God's kingdom. And on the other side of the spectrum, a teaching like this is designed to help us understand when our vision might be self-generated. In other words, like maybe when we're following our own causes at the expense of God's or resisting a vision that is very, very unhealthy. We obviously do want to do that. We don't want to be 
uh, entangled in any type of unhealthy uh, direction in our personal lives or in the church at large. And so we pick up where we left off last week. I promised you that we would look at a second teaching, a second point, if you will, and I'll summarize that here in a moment, but we're going to go back to what we talked about last week. And the general premise of what our message was, was this. You will never be able to pursue God's future for your life unless you can confidently discern what true godly vision is. And I want to recap one brief section of Nehemiah 1, 4 through 7, because this is where we derive this truth from. When I heard these things, this is Nehemiah speaking, he says, I sat down and I wept. And he is clearly broken for the people of God. This is already a good thing. It's not a good thing that Israel is suffering, but it's a good thing that his first response here is, is lament. He's overwhelmed by the reality of what is going on amongst his countrymen. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. And he goes on to say, I now confess, he's moved beyond lamenting, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Now, last week I said, if you want to know how to validate godly vision in your life, it requires you to invest in two key areas. Remember, Christianity is a, is a grace. It's a gift from God. Our faith in Jesus is a gift from Jesus. But our gifts need to be managed, simply meaning we don't just get a gift and then get negligent with it. We actually want to take care of this gift. We want to shepherd that relationship we have with Christ. And so it would make sense if we want to follow him in more significant ways that we would actually get to the place in our lives where we, where we try to, to follow Jesus in clear ways. And that requires a bit of an investment on our part. And so Nehemiah develops a godly vision because of his deep understanding of who God is. And this first truth we looked at last week when we pointed out that Nehemiah was clearly a man of great faith who was able to discern and apply God's vision for his life and the people of Israel because of his deep understanding of God. The point I made was is if you want to pursue godly vision in your life, then what that means is you must know the character of God and his nature because godly vision implies that we are trying to bring our lives in alignment with the God of the heavens, okay? And this is why Nehemiah's first action upon hearing about the state of his countrymen is to mourn and lament. And we see this in verse 4. As the first thing he does after getting bad news about Jerusalem is to go to God in prayer. His vision begins by acknowledging who God is. This is a character reality here. And he goes on to remind himself of where he is not like God yet. And that's an important word, yet, because I don't want to imply any kind of spiritual idealism here today. What I simply mean by this is that it is important that we all know, like I said a couple of weeks ago, that the journey of following Jesus is sort of like a, it's, it's a lifelong journey. We're all not yet somewhere with God yet. But the point of this is that there's a recognition of it at some point and then a desire to bring our lives in accordance to who Jesus is and what he says our lives should look like, what we should experience. And this makes a lot of sense. How can we become more like God in our personal life or in our church family if we don't actually know God intimately? We'll never embrace his purposes or plans like Nehemiah did if we do not love him enough to want to become like him. And that's why Nehemiah's impulse reaction about Jerusalem's future is not to get on a horse and ride to Jerusalem immediately. That would be 
maybe sort of the impulsive reaction some of us might have, that would probably be where I would start. Like I would think like, well, this is broken. I got to get up and fix it, right? That time comes, but it comes on the heels of a recognition of who God is. And this leads us to the second discipline I promised I would speak about last week. How did Nehemiah get to know his God so intimately that he developed a godly vision for his life? Well, Nehemiah develops a godly vision for his life because of his thorough knowledge of God's scriptures. He doesn't just know God like in some transitory way. He doesn't know God in some loose way. His acknowledgement of the laws of God and the fact that they have been broken and the commands and the decrees of God, all of this shows that Nehemiah is referring to something beyond his own opinions about who God is and what God's desire for his life is. And this can be seen in the very next part of his prayer in verse 7. His motivation for Israel's could be rebuilding of the walls and clearly the morale and the spirit of God's people is anchored in his deep understanding of how he and God's people were far from God. I mean, he literally says, we have disobeyed your laws and commands. And what's funny about this is we might want to focus on the disobedience part, which is an important part to focus on. It's one of the reasons why Israel is where they're at. But he prefaces this with the fact that God is a God of goodness. He's a God of love. He's a God who keeps his covenants. And what he's saying here is like, you have still, you are still our God. You still love us, even though we have disobeyed you and walked away from you. And it is out of that burden that Nehemiah begins to develop a a clarity for his future and eventually the future of God's people. And this is really important to point out because it validates what we said earlier, that God-given vision always meets a genuine need. It honors God and benefits others. Now, I want you to think about this in, in contrast, if you will, to what Nehemiah is doing now and what Nehemiah could have done according to the logic of his day. This is a time in world history where nations are toppling nations. That's essentially what's happening. And so what is the usual course of action when a nation is taken over, like when Babylon destroys Israel and then Persia destroys Babylon, what happens is is another nation rises up and they claim power and they go to war and eventually take the territories of the land or the, the, the monetary value of whatever it is they're doing. This is, I like to call it kingdom toppling. This is sort of the era that we're in. And so it would be very natural for Nehemiah to raise up an army, or at least attempt to, although I don't even know that that was possible. But I'm sure the wisdom of the day would have said, hey, raise up an army and go take back Jerusalem, right? But that's not what he does, because I want you to think about this. He, we know in a couple of chapters, we'll find out that he is in close proximity to the king of Persia, meaning he has the king's ear. And If he were to say something like, listen, I need you to let me go back to Jerusalem so I can rebuild a wall so that I will make my name famous forever. Uh, Who knows? Maybe maybe I'll do this thing so right that God will give me a book deal in the scripture, like I'll get my own chapter of the Bible. This is going to be great for me. If he were to say something like that to the Persian king, what would have likely happened is the Persian king would have had him beheaded five minutes afterwards. Because this sounds like a person who's about to revolt against the established authority in their day, against the Persian Empire. And if the king was crazy enough to let him go home under that pretense, which would have never happened, and Nehemiah tried to rally the defeated and shamed people of Israel under that banner of complete narcissism, in other words, like, I'm your hero, I'm here to make this better, so you can all worship me, I'm pretty sure the people of Jerusalem would have likely identified him as an arrogant megalomaniac, a person concerned with developing his own reputation and his own glory, a person more concerned with advancing his own causes 
and not God's. And it's hard for me to believe that God's people, even as troubling as, as, I mean, it was a hard project what they underwent, but as difficult as it was, they united and pulled through. And that does not happen under a type of person who is abusive or taking advantage of people. And this is why I think Nehemiah's story is a good one for us to refer to when it comes to healthy, godly vision. Because we see a lot of godliness in his vision. We want to be the type of people who, when people see what we're doing, or ask about what we're doing, it reflects the nature and the character of God. And as we'll see in future chapters, this vision does move forward because it is first rooted in God's truth. The foundation of what, of what Nehemiah is about to do does not begin with rolling out a map and figuring out how to source mud and clay and water to build stone. It begins with the full recognition of the fact that God is still God. And even though they walked away from this covenant, God is still God, ready to forgive, ready to receive, and ready to restore them which in case you're wondering is why we named this church Restoration. Because that truth, even though you and I are not building physical walls today, that truth is the same for us. It does not matter where we are with the Lord right now. He is always ready, willing, and available to receive us when our hearts are pure and right, when we literally repent like Nehemiah did and come back to him. God never moves. It's us on the other end that do the moving. And so this is much more than just a story about, about construction, and that's what I hate about this book. Not the book itself, but a lot of times when this book is, is taught, it's actually taught from the angle of a church trying to get a building. And we're going to talk about a building here in a moment, but it's a, it's a building campaign book. And what I think is sad about this is it entirely misses the heart of what was going on in this story. The walls were a secondary reality to what was going on here. Nehemiah's first and his foremost concern was the restoration of God's people back to the the sonship and daughtership that God had offered them as he raised them up as as the nation of Israel. This is truly about leading Israel back to the place that we talked about a month ago, where her her light shined brightly to the world. Genesis 12, God tells Israel, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. That was their role in life. And in the modern world, the church is no different. We are meant to be a blessing to the nations. Wherever our feet carry us, we are meant to bring the blessings and the goodness of Jesus Christ. And so Nehemiah's vision is God's vision. And that's one of the most important things we can recognize in our own lives and in the lives of a corporate family like our church. And so how do we know this? How do we know that God gave him clarity and vision? Well, we can say this confidently because he knew his truth. Everything he's talking about here is referring to to the laws and the decrees of God, like the stuff Moses was talking about way before this story is even happening. And he literally confesses the fact, not that the nation failed God, or that some people failed God, but he failed God and his father before him and his family. It's this wholesale recognition that Israel was not where they needed to be. And they were at this stage of life, not a blessing to the nations that God had asked them to be. And this is what Nehemiah steps in. Out of that God-given vision, birthed out of genuine need, he steps into this, honors God, and does something that begins to benefit others based on scripture. Now, this is the sort of big idea I want to communicate at this section right here. If you, if you want to identify God's what is and what could be, this is the language we've been using, where we are now and, and where God wants us to be, then you must first know God through his word. These two disciplines, understanding the character of God and the nature of God, and knowing that we can discern the character and nature of God when we are actually people that, that look to the scripture and we have accountability with each other, what that means is, is we're on the same journey trying to figure out the truth of God and uh, apply it in our lives there are some truths that are more easily applicable in our lives and hearts than others, but we want to make sure we do this in community with each other. 
so that we never get to a place where we develop vision or pursue things in life that are actually putting us in a position where it's causing us to not be a blessing to the nations around us. Or in the very severe case, as we see here, where we begin to dishonor the name of God. The human heart is sort of notorious for wanting to preserve itself. And what we see in God-given vision is that God cares about our hearts, but not only our hearts. He cares about other people too. And so there's one other thing I want to say here this morning regarding this, this idea. And it's about timing which was the, the subtext of this, this teaching I'm giving, discerning vision when it comes to God's timing. It is very important to note that clear vision from God does not always mean immediate action. And what I mean by that is oftentimes we are the type of people who when we see something is broken or there is a need or there is a problem, we want to be the type of people who, who get to this place where we are immediately doing something. In other words, we come to this place where we see the problem and we sort of, in a knee-jerk reaction, try to fix the problem. But that's not what happens here. Even though Nehemiah has this burden that God laid on his heart, even though he was able to see a future at this point in his history that doesn't quite exist yet, it doesn't happen immediately. In this story, the time frame is roughly four months between Nehemiah's vision to go to Jerusalem and what we're reading about here. And that, that's four months just to get there. We're not even talking about the rest of the project. That is not always the case when it comes to how God brings about vision in our lives. Now, I know, because I am a human, that typically when I sense something is out of order and clearly know how to put it back in order, I would prefer that that be done in seven minutes or less. But that is not how some of the greatest challenges or things in our lives come about. In fact, if every person in this room, I, I would be willing to just about guarantee that every person in this room, if you were to begin looking back at your life collectively, you would think about seasons where God was working in you. Or maybe you didn't even know God was working in you, but the things that have mattered most to you don't usually happen overnight. I'm not saying they can't. I'm just saying it's pretty, pretty rare. And it's ironic that we live, and I've said this before, we live in a high-speed culture. But the, the journey of faith and the most meaningful projects and relationships in our lives are usually anything but fast. In fact, applying rhythms of speed to these things almost always hurts the relationships that, we, that matter most. So we might say that following Jesus is a slow faith. And we have to learn the tension between a slow faith and a, and a fast world. Otherwise, what's going to happen is we'll begin to lay expectations on ourselves or the people around us that, that actually can't be met. And then we'll be frustrated with the fact that God isn't bringing about what we thought he should bring about in, in our timing. And while the Bible is packed with stories about how God's people were, were given clear direction by God to bless the nations, the time frame and the details of those circumstances of how that happens are all over the map. Look at a guy like the Apostle Paul, who's one of my heroes in the New Testament. I mean, this guy was killing Christians before Jesus got a hold of them, right? There wasn't like an instant light switch that, that brought, Paul back to, uh, brought Paul to God. He has this long-storied history of how God is working in his life, even in places where he doesn't know. It's an elongated story. Yeah, we read about it in like 30 seconds when we go through that text of his conversion. But what happened before, during, and after that is a, is a human's life. And sometimes we even see people in the Bible that have very clear vision, but they try to force it too soon, meaning they know what God's desire is for them. They know the truth, but the problem is, is they're so impatient that they actually move away from timing. They, they immediately get up and ride the horse to Jerusalem, and that is not the way that this usually works. So, for example, I'll give you 
One of the best examples of this in the Bible. Look at Moses. Here's a guy who, perhaps more than anybody else in the Old Testament, he's got a pretty stellar relationship with God. And he knows what God is telling him to do in the first stage of his life. He gives him a clear vision to deliver Israel from Egyptian slavery and bondage. He has the right idea. He has a a clear and direct vision from God. But his execution of that vision is impatient, and it creates a big problem. Do you guys remember the first thing uh, Moses did when he recognized that he was going to be the deliverer of Egypt? Was it to lament and pray and be broken before God? you remember the first thing he did? He killed an Egyptian taskmaster. I think I heard somebody say that. If not, get up in that Old Testament a little more, people. you got to get back there, right? He says, yeah, I'm going to deliver people. And he sees, a, he sees a, essentially a slaveholder beating a slave. And he goes and he, and he kills him. And that is not the desire of God in this moment. So what happens here is it's fair to say here's a guy with the right vision. But he makes a, an impulsive response and tries to force fruit. And because of that, God sends him to the Sinai for 40 years. Essentially, he's got to go get developed. Moses learns his role in bringing about God's vision is not always to force fruit. And this is the problem with with our Western world is we're always so concerned about results that it is often at the expense of the process that actually brings about the results. I refer to this as end caps in life. We want end caps. We want goals. But we need to recognize that our goals, our journey, our, our pursuit of Jesus takes time. And we can really learn from this story and the others like it, whether it's in our personal life or church family, when it comes to God-given vision, I want you to think about this. When it comes to God-given vision, there is always a season that must take place for God to mature his vision in us and for us to mature as followers of Jesus in preparation for his vision. I want to say that one more time. When it comes to God-given vision, when God shows you where you should be, There is always a season that must take place for God to mature his vision in us and for us to mature as followers of Jesus in preparation for his vision. Whether that is something as big as like what the next 10 years of our church family looks like or in your life, maybe you're praying for God to help you be patient. Seldom does God like email you a bottle of pills from heaven that says, here's patience. It doesn't work that way. There are some great medications for that, but what I'm telling you here is like, it doesn't instantly happen. There's a preparation season. There's an understanding of why we're not patient. Why are we distrustful of God? What is it in us that is causing us to, to, to be far from God in this area of life? There's always a season of preparation. And so if there's one thing I can encourage you in this morning about your faith, individually, as families, and as our church, it's to let it be slow. Be okay with slow, because during that time, that's when true vision is actually brought about. And I want to share a story with you. It's a great parallel where, like, I knew I was going to teach this this week, and last week I was challenged with this. I, by nature, am not a slow person. Most of you know that by the way that I speak. I am a caffeinated, like, ex-New Yorker, and I just like to move. That's the way life works for me. I, I have two modes, like 100 or zero. I'm either asleep uh, or I am at 100%, and uh, there's no middle ground with me. Now, a, a great parallel here is last week, I'm, I'm across the street at lunch with a couple from our church, and, uh, you know, we are praying about a permanent home. Uh, just to encourage you, we, uh, we have informally been looking for a couple of years, but we have a formal search team now that is aiding in this process, and in a few weeks, we'll bring them down here and let you meet them, but I wanted to sort of prime the pump here and, uh, and sort of help us to understand the significance of this teaching in light of this 
concern. So uh, I also want to point out this. As we pray about space, not a building, I would really like to pray about space. I'd like to change that language. And what I mean by that is we want to be in the best place God has us to accomplish his mission. And that very well could be here for quite some time. That's why I say this. It very well could not be. But if we think space, then what happens is we get to this place where we can be thankful no matter where we are because we can serve Jesus no matter where we are. And I want to point out that we have been unusually blessed to be able to meet here in the past 10 years. This has not been like a perfect environment. There's no such thing as a perfect environment. Even if we owned our own space, they would, they would not be perfect. But we have great relationships with the management. They bend over backwards for us here, and uh, it's just good. So I don't ever want to get to the place where we're not thankful for what's going on all across this theater. I, I think we really should be thankful. And I would dare to say that should God ever move us from this place, um, a great many of us are going to be sad. Like, I can remember standing out here before this was even a building and looking at a dirt plot, knowing it was going to be a movie theater and knowing we were going to meet here. I'd already signed a contract to get into this place. This, this place is a part of our DNA, okay? So let's be thankful for that. That said, I also understand the itch to want something that we can call home, or at least more permanently. And that's what we believe part of our future vision is. And that was really confirmed to me again last week after Sunday lunch. Uh, I come out from the steakhouse across the street, and I noticed there was a table of uh, Girl Scouts selling Girl, Cou- Girl Scout cookies. And so I really love those little lemon biscuit things. And I went there and thought, hey, I'll take a cholesterol pill and buy a lot of cookies. And so I went there and I totally got roped into buying cookies. And I went to buy one box. But the cutest little girl said, sir, if you buy five boxes, we'll, we'll put you in a raffle. To I don't even know what the raffle was for. I was just like, you had me at sir. And I bought five boxes of cookies, okay? And so I got to talking to the, to the people that work, and they're the two adults. And I said, hey, you know, I... Uh, I'm, I'm a pastor. I meet across the street here in this movie theater. And I said, you know, we love serving our community and we are always looking for ways to do so. So I said, you know, I don't know if there's anything that can happen, but I gave them a card and said, hey, if we can ever serve you in the future, just, you know, reach out to me. I'd, I'd love to be able to do whatever we can to support this because you're doing a really good thing trying to raise up and mentor young girls, young women, to be productive and fruitful in this world. And so we started talking about that. And after I gave them a card, they said to me, and this is a true story, they said, hey, you know what? They said, you, you don't sound like you're from here. Are you from Boston? That's what she said to me. Now, if you're from here, you know that um, I'm not from Boston. I'm a South Brooklyn kid. And uh, Boston, I don't have anything against Bostonians, but you know that we are diehard Yankee fans, like, I mean, capital Y Yankee fans, like going back to the Brooklyn Dodgers, like before they went to L.A. And so I was so insulted by this statement at first that I had said to her, um, I'm actually not from Boston. I'm from New York. And I said, I need my card back and we're not helping you. Uh, This is a done deal. I actually didn't say that. I just emailed it to them on Monday. I didn't have the courage to do so. But I, I had to sort of correct them. I'm like, my name is Anthony Orzo. I had like the most stereotypical Italian name. My last name is like a pasta, literally. And that's not where I, where I grew up. And so we were jesting and joking. And we did swap information. And when I asked what their greatest need was, immediately, the first thing they said was, you know, our troop has no permanent place to meet. And because of that, we meet in people's homes each week. And I immediately resonated with that because a group of you meet in my living room every week and we meet in this building, three theaters and a foyer every week. And I got to thinking to myself in that moment, like I'm talking to them and, you know, having this conversation with myself in my head. I'm thinking, God, if we had a permanent space, we would meet this need right now. 
In other words, I'm getting like Moses in this moment in my head. And I'm thinking, why are we not? Why don't we have a... I started complaining to myself, and I had to stop myself in my head while I was talking to these folks. And I said, well, you know what? We're in a very similar situation. I said, we've been meeting here for almost 10 years. I said, we have contracted spaces all over the city uh, we, because we don't have a stable home. We're like in a tabernacle. And I said, maybe some of those spaces could help you. So I said, send, send me an email. Uh, just get in touch with me, and let's see if... If our experience in being able to function healthily for 10 years in portable space, if there's a way we could bless you in this season until we maybe have something more permanent that you could call home. And it was a really amazing conversation, okay? And what I want to point out here, especially as we wrap up, is that I I was thinking to myself, you know, I got excited after that, and it was sort of an affirmation to me, like, Yes, we need to, with all faithfulness, be looking for something that we don't have to set up and break down each week, something that, that meets our needs, but also meets the needs of our community. Like, I, I, I pray about a Swiss Army knife, like a, a small, affordable space that we just wear the rugs out, doing the Lord's work and serving our community. That part of the vision is utterly exciting to me. But here is the not-so-exciting part of that vision. We do not have that place yet. And so this tension is very real, right? I can see it. I can feel it. I can sense it. So can you. But that place is not here yet. We're looking at places, but it's not been brought to us. So I want us to really think about what I'm about to say when it comes to timing, who God is, and what, what our role in this is going to be in the weeks, years, or months to come. Our desire for space we have got to be okay with letting God execute that on his timeline. I've had to give this to him because it's his to begin with. And what that will allow us to do is to be less impatient about where we think we should be and more trusting about God putting us where we need to be when and where he sees fit. And so this subject, I'd like to not talk about it as a building anymore. I'd like to talk about it from the angle of space. And anytime we refer to it, in this series, we're going to come back to this. But with it, I want to issue you a challenge. One of the most common questions I hear of late is when we'll be able to get into something more permanent. And that's a good question. We, we believe deeply in transparency here. There's no question you can't ask. So don't hear me saying, like, don't ask that question. I just want to challenge you in this way. When you think about that question or you ask somebody that question, every time you think about that question or ask somebody that question, I want you to pray about that question too. In other words, parallel it with, Yes, Lord, when will you have space for us? Or where will that space be? Or give our leadership wisdom to seek it out. You know, let's really not just ask questions under heaven. Let's not run to a building. Let's actually run to Jesus and ask him to explicitly show us the who's, the what's, the when's, the where's, and the why. Because if we don't, what will happen is over time we might get fidgety in this place. And we might actually impede our ability to continue doing good ministry because we think we don't have a space. And I'm telling you that the absence of a space cannot impede our ability to do good ministry. Because space is not what brings ministry about. It's us. So good ministry goes where where we go. Having said that, um, there's usually two outcomes. This is the last thing I'll say today. There's two outcomes that happen when a church... uh, acts upon moving into something more permanently. One is really good, one is not so good. For a lot of churches, what happens is it becomes a catalyst for us to accomplish our vision of disciple-making, meaning we can start meeting needs like I just talked to you about, right? That's a wonderful thing. Our, our space becomes God's zone, and we can develop and do great things in that space, and we can use it for the glory of God outside of the Christian world. There's no, no set of boundaries we can't apply to space. That's the good side of this. But I'm telling you, there's an equally ungood side of this. 
I've seen just as many churches get into a space and then it becomes a distraction that impedes the mission to make disciples. And what happens is um, there are all these unexpected challenges or what, what becomes more important is the preservation of the space rather than the actual ministry that's supposed to take place in it. And I'll just give you a, a very anonymous but true story. I'll never forget many, 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 many years ago um, when I was pastoring. This is my 21st year, first year pastoring. I had somebody come up to me and say, um, Anthony, we have a real problem. We have a lot of kids running around this church and they're scuffing up the paint. That's what they said. And I thought to myself, uh, that's a really good problem. <laughs> that's literally what I said. I said, like, we can touch up walls with paint, but we, we cannot, like, yell at kids because we're using this space and they're having fun worshiping Jesus on Sunday. And that's a small example of what can happen with buildings. That's why I don't want to call it a building. It can actually become a distraction. It, there's tons of speculation. Even amongst us, I've, we've talked. There's tons of speculation as to why God does what he does. We all know God can do what he wants. And if he wanted us in something permanent right now, we'd be in something permanent right now. But we're not in something permanent right now. So what I want to ask you to do is pray alongside me for clear timelines about how he's going to do what he's going to do. Our job is to prepare soil for the future. And there'll be more of this in the weeks that come. And our, our sort of secondary job is to trust God when it comes to the fruit. Meaning we, ca- we cannot, like, believe me, I've run my head into this wall a lot. I cannot create a building. It would be wonderful if I could, but I can't. But what we can do is pray and prepare ourselves for that opportunity should the day ever come. And the way we do that is by remaining faithful to the work that God has already given us now and looking for a space that can enhance our ability to do it. God is the only person that can do this. And I believe this is especially true when it comes to our future and permanent home. And so as we draw to a close, think this morning. I want you to think about this. Moses had a God-given vision that God brought to fruition eventually, 40 years after killing an Egyptian. Nehemiah had a God-given vision brought to fruition. It took time, but it happened. Each of one of us in our own lives, God's got a direction for our lives. And prayerfully, that direction is birthed out of a, a, the truth of the scripture and a need in our world. Uh, something that honors uh, other people, honors God, and benefits others. And our vision has always been very simple. It's been to make disciples. It's not been to manage numbers. It's not been to fill rooms. It's to make disciples. That is what our goal is. And we want to pray that God continues to entrust us with that and gives us an ever-increasing opportunity to raise up men and women who will raise up men and women that reach and teach for Jesus. And so today, I ask you to take an action step. If you're interested in joining, we're going to sort of communal prayer chain. I'm going to mention this for a few weeks. But if you're interested in knowing how you can purposefully pray for this and a host of other things, before you leave this room, during the response time we're about to have in a minute, please write on your connection card your name and the word prayer. And we will follow up with you and start to invite you into this structure. In other words, my hope is that in two months, we're going to have a 24-hour circle of prayer because there's so many people that are involved in praying for certain days or times throughout the week. And today we're going to talk about the significant, excuse me, next week, we're going to talk about the importance of of praying and and laboring. That's where we're going to go. But today I want you to think about what we've discussed when it comes to vision and timing. And as we think about our lives and the future God has for us, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about your own life and our church? And what will you do about that? What step will you take when you leave this room today?